Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In 2007, the museum, of, the museum at Eldridge Street opened at the site of a restored 19th century synagogue originally built by some of the first Eastern European Jewish immigrants in New York City. In Beyond the Synagogue, Jewish Nostalgia as Religious Practice, published by New York University Press in 2021, Rachel B. Gross argues that nostalgic activities such as visiting the museum at Eldred Street or eating traditional Jewish foods should be understood as American Jewish religious practices. Tracing American Jews' involvement in a broad array of ostensibly non-religious activities, including conducting Jewish genealogical research, visiting Jewish historic sites, purchasing books and toys that teach Jewish nostalgia to children, and seeking out traditional Jewish foods, Gross argues that these practices illuminate how many American Jews are finding and making meaning within American Judaism. Rachel B. Gross is assistant professor and John and Marsha Goldman Chair in American Jewish Studies in the Department of Jewish Studies at San Francisco State University. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Zalman. I'm so glad to be here. So to get started, uh, please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work. Yeah. So um, this book began as my dissertation. And before that, it has its roots in my master's thesis at the University of Virginia. And um, I was really interested in studying more or less ordinary Jews' lives. Um, I don't know if there's a category of ordinary Jew, but I was interested in what people were doing in their daily lives. And I was really interested in Um, the spaces that they were creating, the kind of community spaces that Jews were using, and especially in museums. Um, And you can hear that at the top um, when you describe the museum at Eldridge Street. Um, I was really interested in historic synagogues that were used as museums and what it meant for them to be both museums and synagogues, which on the face of it seem like really different kinds of of spaces. And um, one of my professors um, gave me the image of a um, uh, one of those images that are like black and white images. And if you look at it one way, it's a woman. And if you look at it the other way, it's a duck or something, right? So it's like, is it a synagogue? Is it a museum? Is it a synagogue? It's a museum. It's both, right? So I was like, what's going on in this in these spaces? Um, and I, I wrote my master's thesis on, on on these weird spaces that were both. And from that, continued on to my um, uh, my PhD at Princeton in the Department of Religion and realized what I was actually really interested in. I didn't feel like I was done with these synagogues that were used as museums, but I was really interested in in the emotion 
that people were feeling and the stories people were feeling in these spaces. And from there, I, I decided that the emotion I thought they were feeling in these spaces was nostalgia, was nostalgia, especially for the story of Central and Eastern European Jews, um, the largest immigration of Jews to the United States, um, who came to the Ashkenazi Jews from Central and Eastern Europe, who came to the United States between um, the 1880s and 1924, um, and and Jews who came to these spaces in the late 20th and early 20th first centuries really wanted to to feel a longing for that time period of emotion, wanted to feel a connection to that time. And um, ultimately, I ended up studying a variety of, um, of institutional um, organizations, of, of institutions and organizations that developed and I think cultivated that feeling in American Jews. Um, so I ended up looking at um, Jewish genealogists and the historic synagogues used as museums, children's books and dolls, and finally some um, some restaurants and another Jewish foodways. And in the book, I um, I look at how all of these practices and institutions related to them um, encourage Jews to feel a nostalgia for this particular moment at the turn of the century. And I make the argument because I'm a religious studies scholar. I make the argument that that is religion. Right, right. Well, uh, thank you for 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 laying that out. Um, to to step back a drop, you talk in the book about how uh, Jewish leaders and and sociologists uh, often worry about the Jewish continuity crisis, and you argue that those uh, uh, those. Uh, Jewish leaders and and sociologists that are concerned about this Jewish continuity crisis are really missing something important about the life and practice of American Jews. Well, uh, what is it exactly that they're missing and why are they missing it, so to speak? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, As I say in the book, I think a lot of the sociologists and and other Jewish community leaders who are are thinking about a Jewish American Jewish continuity crisis are are looking for Judaism in the wrong places. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They are um, they're mostly looking for Judaism like really Jewish religious practice um, in synagogues and in um, what some folks call Jewish legacy institutions. So along with synagogues, um, Jewish community centers get lumped in there, um, Jewish federations, which are the the major vehicle of Jewish philanthropy, get lumped in there. These are, are recognizably Jewish religious institutions in some way. And um, those, the heyday of those institutions was really the 1950s, which um, was really the heyday of, of institutionalized religion in the United States in general, beyond Jews. And I think, and I'm, I'm certainly not the only Jewish studies scholar or American religious history scholar to, to say this, but um, we should start thinking of the 1950s. Um, not as a model for American religion and American Judaism, but really as an anomaly that American religion and American Judaism was having a weird moment when a lot of people were going to synagogue, a lot of people were going to church, and that was actually pretty unusual. Um, And I think that um, American Jews 
are uh, might think of themselves as people who are maybe less institutional now. I actually think they're still hugely institutionally minded, but they're interested in other types of institutions. So I think I don't see Jewish continuity or, or really I, I don't love the word continuity, but I, I don't see Jewish religion or practice or community in crisis. I see it flourishing in all kinds of different places and the kinds of different places I've been looking have been, again, um, Jewish genealogical societies, historic synagogues that are used as museums, um, in um, the institutions around children's books and in um, family practices around children's books and dolls, and in restaurants like delis. And and what makes these institutions different is that from the, the other kind of institution, from the synagogues and, and federations, may, may be different from those, arguably, um, is that um, you can devote your life to them, right? You can be a Jewish genealogist who, who spends her whole, really devotes her life full time to doing Jewish genealogy. Or you can pop in once to a Jewish genealogy Facebook group or pop on once to Ancestry.com. Um, and I, I don't think that popping in once to these institutions or these networks uh, makes them any less meaningful in people's lives. I think that um, that these these structures, these networks, these institutions still really help people um, have a narrative that that helps them understand themselves in history and and in relation to a broader community. Right, right. And so uh, just to go back to these sociologists, and maybe because I'm a sociologist, so I find uh, this, uh, uh, I mean, your, your book is so many fascinating uh, aspects, but this is one of them that really sticks out for me. Um, so I, I would assume that the the religious uh, Jewish leaders that you're that you're alluding to, and the Jewish sociologists are aware of the kinds of practices that you are focusing on. Just they would consider them Jewish cultural practices, and you consider them Jewish religious practices, right? Is that is that fair to assume? I think yes I, and no, but but yeah. Well, <laughs> well, well, uh, well, I was just going to say that, assuming that's the case, what would you say is gained by describing these specifically as religious practices rather than quote unquote merely Jewish cultural practices? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for that question. I, the reason I would say yes and no to begin with is certainly they're aware that these things exist. I think that the things I'm looking at haven't been measured in the community studies and in the the national studies that have been done of American Jews, most notably, of course, the 2013 Pew study of American Jews. So my understanding and, and um, as a sociologist, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but but from what I've seen, um, the community studies and the national studies of Jews don't tend to ask about these kinds of cultural practices. And what's interesting to me, I, I really wish they would. Um, that would be helpful to me, and I think to to many other folks studying Jews. Um, and um, there was a Baltimore community study many years ago that actually did measure muse Jews museum attendance. Um, it was very unusual. I haven't seen that on any other community study. And um, what was really interesting to me was that um, Jews were doing it at, um, at really rates, the same rate across the board. 
um, that it was it was something that um, I don't remember what the rate was. It, it was maybe fifty percent or or something. I'm making that up. But um, the the rate held basically constant across people who identified as conservative, um, orthodox, reform, not non affiliated with a denomination, um, and that's really interesting. Like that that's something that I think is pretty unusual, right? And that tells us like this is a constant across. Jews. Um, so that that's one thing. Um, and then to your to your question um, about like what why what's gained by calling this religious, which is like really like what are we doing as religious studies scholars? Um, I find religion a really fruitful word. Um, maybe I have to say that because that's how I make my living. But. Um, <laughs> I think of religion, you know, we all got to defend our living at this point. Um, I I think of religion um, really broadly. Um, how Judaism fits into religion is, is a, a long history that Judaism um, often fits uncomfortably into our standard definitions of religion, in part because our standard definitions of religion were created by Protestants. Um, so Judaism sometimes works like Protestantism and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and um, I find um, I'm really drawn to expansive definitions of religion that religious studies scholars do. I especially like the way that Robert Orsi thinks about religion as um, networks of relationships between um, that can include relationships between living people, between people and the divine, um, between people and sacred figures. Sometimes that happens in Judaism. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, between people and, and their ancestors, all kinds of different meaningful relationships and the texts and the practices and the stories that support all of these kinds of relationships. And we can highlight some of these relationships at, at certain times and sometimes, sometimes we don't. And I think um, using religion in this way and thinking about it really expansively helps us think ultimately about what's meaningful in people's lives and the ways that they form meaning as individuals, as families, and as communities. And, and to me, as a religious studies scholar, like that's at the heart of what I want to do. I want to find out what is meaningful to people. And I think that the way that sociologists of American Jews have been studying um, religion and, and really like the, the Pew study divided people into Jews by religion and Jews of no religion, right? They're, they're thinking about religion, but they're thinking of religion in a really narrow way that I think is missing the places and the practices where Jews are finding meaning as, as individuals and, and as part of broader communities. Right. And, right. and well, that matters. And that matters because I think just in, in people's lives and it matters in terms of how, how American Jews um, distribute money also, like ultimately it comes, these studies matter for, for philanthropic purposes as well, as, as well as how we understand ourselves. Yeah. Right, right. So there's definitely uh, uh, um, a good deal riding on kind of the definition or the framing of uh, the the concept of religion as it relates to the Jewish uh, community in America. Um, you mentioned about meaning making, and I'm just curious, um, like, does it matter if some of the people that are involved in the practices that you're talking about may not describe themselves as being engaged in a quote religious 
ritual or religious practice? Like, is that significant for your understanding or your analysis of what's going on there? Yeah. And, and that's a, that, that might or might not be a difference between um, a social scientist and a humanities scholar. Ultimately, I think of my work, I, I'm naming things both as nostalgic and as religious um, for and my subjects often might not think of their work as nostalgic and as religious. Ultimately, I think I'm offering them words that can be used as tools to help them understand their worlds. Um, so I, I certainly do my best to be respectful um, of the work they do and um, respectful of the ways that they understand their work. Um, and some of the folks that I inter- I interviewed just dozens and dozens of people and ob- observed many more. And some of them told me that they appreciated the language I was using. Um, some of them told me, that's nice, Rachel, but like, that's not the word I'd use. Um, and, and ultimately, that's fine with me. I, some of them, I will say, um, do use this language. Um, I do... I did speak to a um, a prominent Jewish genealogist who describes his work as a mitzvah and uses pretty um, religious terms to do so. He says it's a mitzvah. um, And a mitzvah is a a Jewish commandment. Yes. Thank you. Um, uh, He says it's it's a it's a Jewish commandment, like a religiously uh, a commandment um, for for a number of specific reasons. He um, and he connects it to traditional commandments such as honor your parents, which he extends to honor your ancestors, um, and and a number of other traditional commandments. Um, and I take that a step further, further than he does, and I say, okay, this whole thing, this whole engaging with longing for this particular story of American Jewish immigration can be understood as a mitzvah in American Jewish life. So, so some of them like it and some of them say, okay, some of, I would use the word spiritual, but not religious. Okay. I think that that gets to the different ways that American Jews and and other Americans use language. Um, But ultimately I think of this book as, um, First of all, I'm having a conversation among other academics, um, but insofar as as I I hope any of my um, interlocutors will read this book, I, I think of these tools as as offering something to them, which sure. they can take or leave. <laughs> sure, as as any as, as of course any any scholar studying anything, you know, we come up with models and insights that we hope uh, we pray <laughs> people. <laughs> out there in the broader society will uh, embrace and appreciate. And obviously it's up to them to to figure out what to do with it, (laughs) of course. Um, You mentioned the word nostalgia. What do you mean by nostalgia? So I think of nostalgia as a sentimental longing for uh, an irrevocable past, which is a definition that I both like and also it makes me laugh every time because I think... um, the fundamental aspect of the past is that it is, in fact, irrevocable. <laughs> right? That's how time works. <laughs> but um, but the, the deal with nostalgia is that you're really longing for the past. You're really um, you're 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 sad. You're a little bit bittersweet, sad about the past and that longing that that consciousness that the past cannot be reclaimed or, or, or returned to um, is. Um, 
you're really you're really conscious of, of that moment and it's um it's both comforting i think in some ways that that we can't go back to to the past but also it's it's really it's really bittersweet so it's that longing for the past right and specifically in the context of your study the past that that american jews uh feel such strong nostalgia for is the 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 um the Jewish immigration East, the Eastern European Jewish immigration to America in the early 1900s. That's really the the period in Jewish history that you feel so many uh, contemporary American Jews are longing to connect to. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think they're being they're not just longing for it. Individuals are are longing for this moment. Sure. Um, But what I'm interested in is how many institutions are teaching them to feel longing for this moment that um, that, you know, people people feel might might feel that way about their own families. Certainly, I see that in the Jewish genealogists I look at. Um, but this is a standardized narrative that American Jews are being taught to feel. Um, and and what's so interesting about that is that that that's going to include American Jews whose families um, had this particular experience, as as most American Jewish families do have have this history, um, and it's going to include people who didn't have this experience. So um, because it's a standardized story. Um, American Jews who's uh, who are who have Sephardi backgrounds from Spanish and Portuguese descent, Mizrahi Jews um, from Middle Eastern descent, and and, um, and other Jews um, who who might or might not um, have Jewish ancestry are, are all being taught relating to this particular history is how you are an American Jew. Right. That really is fascinating. I mean, you talk about the boundaries of this nostalgia that on the one hand, it's fairly expansive, it's fairly kind of fluid and flexible. And at the same time, there are limits to it. And as you were just saying, some things that are sort of apparently or logically beyond the limits of this nostalgia or of this history still kind of get folded into it. Um, and one thing that that really I thought was so uh, a fascinating example was about the adoptee who was uh, adopted by a Jewish family and then was told that she should adopt her Jewish ancestry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when I um, I was really interested in people who write. Jewish genealogy manuals. They're really writing the script for Jewish genealogy. And um, and I, I asked a number of them, like, what do you tell adop- adoptees? And, and, you know, looked at what they write in their books. And, um, and they said, yeah, you know, absolutely, you should as an adoptee, um, or, or I think the same would go for Jews by choice. Um, you should absolutely study your your own family history, um, whether that's your biological family history, your adopted family history. But you should you should also <laughs> be interested in this mainstream narrative of Ashkenazi Jews, right? Um, and and what I think about when I think about Jewish genealogy, what what makes gene actually what makes genealogy different from academic history is I think the emotion that you are emotionally placing yourself in this history. Um, you know, many genealogists are, are really fabulous researchers and, 
have um, have done a lot of archival work, have helped set up archives that many academic historians benefit from. Um, and and what's different, I think, about the work they're doing is that that there's is an is ultimately an emotional project and is ultimately about emotionally placing themselves in the story, which makes them their work um, different, but but certainly not better or worse, but but I think just different from academic historians' work. Right, and I'm curious, was the well obviously the the, the um this nostalgia for. Uh, this particular time in Jewish history clearly, you know, uh, began after this period of Jewish history. As you were uh, saying before, you could, by definition, you could only have nostalgia for something once it has already passed. But was there a particular period when this nostalgic um, uh, um, uh, movement sort of developed? And if so, why? What was going on around that time that contributed to um, this movement beginning? Yeah, thank you for that that question to help me place this story in time. Um, I think about this kind of institutionalized American Jewish nostalgia beginning in the 1970s. Um, and I, I look at it from the 1970s to the present. In the 1960s and 1970s, we have the um, what's called the American Roots Movement, particularly when African Americans were um, were thinking about African American history in new ways and trying to write African American history in new ways. We get um, Roots, the the book and the miniseries of that name, um, and and starting in the 1970s. Um, white folks uh, start saying, hey, thinking about our family histories um, in in similar ways is a really interesting idea. And in particular, in the 1970s, we get what what we sometimes call white ethnics. Um, start li- the people of Irish, Italian, and Ashkenazi, Jewish descent, um, start- and Ashkenazi looking- is Eastern European Jews. Thank yeah. you. Sure. Thank you. So um, Jews of Eastern European descent and um, Italians and Irish all, all look around and say, um, you know, oh, oh, we didn't used to be considered white, but like by the 1970s, we're, we're, we're pretty much considered white. And maybe we're a little bit uncomfortable with that. Right. We want to we want to tell a story of our distinctiveness, um, even as um, our whiteness has been has been beneficial to us and our families on the whole. Um, So so one way to do that is to tell stories of family history is to get really into genealogy, just as African-Americans were getting into genealogy, which is is sometimes a very difficult thing for African-Americans. these white ethnic folks started getting into genealogy and um, and Ashkenazi Jews in the 1970s started contending with how difficult it is to do um, or was especially to do Eastern European Jewish history and that it required a certain set of skills. It required language skills at the time. It required um, a, the difficulty of, of doing research in the Soviet Union in many cases um, and, and they started forming groups. They started forming Jewish genealogical societies. And they started um, networking really on the internet as the internet itself was growing, right? Jewish genealogy has, I think genealogy in general actually is, is very much a story of, um, has always been a story of the internet. 
Um, and I, I interviewed um, folks who, who got in on the internet very early as they tried to create Jewish genealogy networks in that way, um, as they tried to pool their resources. Um, in the, so that's the 1970s. And I think this effort to think about American Jewish histories, family histories and community histories continued um, in the 1980s, folks started looking around at historic synagogues and saying, what are we going to do with these buildings, which which in some cases had been um, either abandoned or congregations had dwindled, um, especially in in urban areas in the 19 in the mid in the mid 20th century. Um, many American Jews, like these other white ethnics, had moved out of cities into the suburbs. Um, so their their former synagogues and cities um, were left, uh, the buildings were left. And, and by the 1980s, folks started looking around thinking about what are we going to do with these buildings? Are we going to present them to the public in some way? Um, in the 1990s, the Jewish children's book industry really starts taking off with, um, with multicultural, with the, um, I think the advent of, of multiculturalism in some ways, children's book, Jewish, um, children's books had been, developing throughout the 20th century. But by the 1990s, mainstream publishers start thinking about wanting a Hanukkah book in, in a public school classroom. And the, um, and the Jewish um, publishing industry or, or Jews authoring and um, in some cases illustrating um, books about Jewish history starts to develop. Um, and, and that really gets a push um, with the organization PJ Library, which we can talk about or not in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah sure. But I want to just go back for a second about the Jewish genealogy. So what exactly were people doing when you, uh, w- with um, these genealogical efforts? Like w- mm. what did it look like on the ground when they were getting together or communicating on the internet or through computers? What, what exactly were they were they? trying to do and and to what extent did they succeed at doing it yeah i think well on the ground in terms of the the practical stuff that could look like a whole lot of things so that could look like um how do i get records from um ellis island about my immigrants um about excuse me about my my ancestors immigration papers how do we sort through or how do we access city records right so so really nitty-gritty stuff in in that way um, and also the nitty-gritty stuff of how do I read um, handwriting how do I translate things that might be in other languages how do we connect between um, and the work of, of connecting family members, right? Um, which all, all of which, all of these kind of practices are going to look really different. Um, I, th- I think really from decade to decade, sometimes from year to year as technology changes. Um, and, and the work they're doing also, I think the work that I'm interested in is, um, is, is how are they telling stories about this, Right. Um, because they're also telling themselves increasingly, like like literally giving talks to each other and writing this. They're creating newsletters um, and and forming groups, telling each other to form groups, writing newsletters about how they should form groups. Um, and I think in the process of doing this, they're figuring out how to tell their stories, right? And how to tell how to tell their stories to each other, 
how to tell their stories to their family members, how to tell their stories to anybody who listen. If you've ever encountered a Jewish genealogist, bless <laughs> them. All they want is somebody to listen to their stories. Um, like, God bless. I had, I, I was honored to listen to many family histories in this research. Um, and I think they're, they're, yeah, they're finding their place, I think, in, in Jewish history and, and community. Right. And what kinds of stories are they telling? Like, do they, you know, do they, do they ascribe certain characteristics to their ancestors or certain, uh, um, you know, ideas about what drove their ancestors to come to America or the kind of life that they created once they arrived? Yeah, so they're 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 often finding um, commonalities between themselves and their ancestors, which is is something that I find really delightful among gene- Jewish genealogists. So um, folks who are into art might say, "Hey, I had an ancestor who was an artist. That must be where it comes from." Or, or <laughs> folks who are scientists, you know, and that's that's so lovely, like that you can place your that you can place yourself in history that you can see a connection between yourself and your ancestors like what amazing meaning making work that is um even if it it might not be like exactly historically accurate or like that that might not be i don't know how artistic talent works maybe that is how it works um but but they're really placing themselves in this history and they're telling a story ultimately american jews um like other white folks in the United States are telling a story of success in the United States. So they're telling stories about how their their ancestors at the turn of the century really struggled. Um, and, and throughout the 20th century, they, they generally became more prosperous. And now American Jews are looking around and saying, hey, what does it mean to be an American Jew who's, who's often, certainly not all Jews in the United States are, are well off, but many of them are telling stories about how they're better off than their ancestors. And this is, it's, it's such an interesting story. Like this is where nostalgia is so interesting to me because um, it's not just nostalgia for the, the good old days like that, that my ancestors had it so great. It's that my ancestors really struggled, that it was really painful for them, that they're telling in the children's books I look at, they're telling stories about like it being physically dirty, you know, and, and it, like stories of hardship. Um, and, and it's that, that longing for the days when things were hard, but there's the, but that we, we had each other, we had family, right? So there's that, that contrast and that, that worry that, um, that maybe that connection to family and community and, and whatever Jewishness is might be lost and can be reclaimed through this longing, through this nostalgic longing for what the ancestors had. Sure. And so tell us a little bit about the, the PJ Library and how it fits into this project. Oh, I am obsessed with PJ Library. I think they are <laughs> the most interesting Jewish institution out there, completely understudied. Um, <laughs> PJ Library is an institution that partners with local Jewish institutions to send free books and music to um, to Jewish and interfaith um, to Jewish and interfaith families with children once a month. So you can sign up through a local institution and like a synagogue or or a JCC, and once a month. A family will receive um, books or music that's age appropriate for their 
Jewish or interfaith kid. And um, they are explicitly interested in shaping the American Jewish family, right? And, <laughs> and getting to them at their most tender, intimate moments, the moments of like bedtime, the moments of, I don't, I don't have kids, but I, I hear from, from folks who have kids that like, that's the moment when you're exhausted <laughs> and you like, you're just reaching for something to put your kid to bed. And like, don't worry, PJ Library's there and they're there <laughs> with a story that will connect you to what they think is the way you should be shaping your family's Jewish um, practices and, and the way that your family understands their Judaism. And they are like they they unlike maybe some of these uh, mainstream sociological studies, they are doing their own sociological studies of Jewish families and they are finding proof that um, that I find quite convincing that they they are shaping Jewish families. So the books that I looked at in um, in my book um, were were all distributed by Jewish by PJ Library. Um, they were all books. PJ Library um, is involved in encouraging new books um, on subjects that they find uh, important, and they also reprint um, previously published books um, in a in a paperback form to distribute to families. So the books that I looked at um, were all previously published children's books on. Eastern European Jewish immigration history, and um, and were distributed by PJ Library. So PJ Library does not only write about it, does not only distribute books about Eastern European Jewish immigration history, but those are the ones from their collection that I looked at. Yeah. Sure, and and how Jewish are these books? Um, very Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> In PJ Library in general, or the books I'm the books in in my book. Well, well, well both. I mean, and, and obviously, when I say Jewish, I mean sort of how much Jewish content, Jewish knowledge, Jewish content is is uh, conveyed in these books. So the books I'm looking at in in my book are are all stories about. Um, uh, about about this moment of immigration history, um, and they are um, they're they're explicitly about Jews immigrating at this moment. And PJ Library adds um, helpfully to me, I, I you know extremely helpful to a researcher. They add um, they have reading guides for parents, and they they tell parents what they like to get out of these books. So um, you know, I I look at a book um, uh, called, um, uh, I look at Sheldon Oberman's The Always Prayer Shawl, for instance, which is, I I think, a beautiful book um, uh, that tells the story of a boy from um, from Russia, presumably in the around the turn of the 20th century, um, who has a relationship with his grandfather, but his family leaves Russia for North America. Side note, Sheldon Overman was actually Canadian and um, wrote a generically North American story so he could it could be published um, uh, for um, audiences in the United States as well, um, which I, I hear is an extremely Canadian thing to do. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, it's, it's very smart. Um, so, so this little boy, um, his grandfather gives him his prayer shawl 
when he leaves Russia and, and comes to North America and um, the boy grows up and and ultimately has a relationship with his own grandson and promises to give his grandson the prayer shawl as well. And um, and there's a bit about the name Adam being passed along the generations as well. I find it a, a, a very, a, actually, I find it a very moving story. I don't find all the children's books I look at <laughs> moving, but, but this one I found very, very moving. Um, and the illustrations um, are, are really stunning. And um, PJ Library, I, I believe, unless I'm confusing it with another book um, at this point, but PJ Library says, talk to, they'll say something like, talk to your um, talk to your children about about where your ancestors come from and also talk to them about different kinds of value, including sentimental value, which like, that's amazing for me. Yes, yes. Talk to children about emotions and the, the ways that objects connect us to previous generations, the way we tell stories and the ways that we um, communicate value um, through, through these um, family connections. Um, so that's, that's really lovely. And, um, and I think it's supposed to be a model, you know, I think PJ is distributing this book because it's supposed to be a model. You're, you're supposed to have either, you're supposed to imagine a relationship with ancestors in the, in this way. Um, yeah, I think that's one thing that comes up in children's books a lot, actually. And, and actually, Sheldon Overman said this himself, that he uh, he didn't have such a great relationship with his own grandparents. But he said, even if you didn't know your grandparents, you knew what you wanted from them. There's a, So I'm really interested, in actually, in these books in imaginary grandparents, which are sometimes, I think, more poignant, um, certainly easier to deal with sometimes than, than real-life <laughs> grandparents. <laughs> Which is to say, imaginary people are easier to deal with than real people. Not a slight against grandparents. <laughs> right? No, I, I I totally get that. I think it, 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 there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and if you're able to, if if someone who's adopted by a Jewish family is able to adopt their the ancestry of the family that adopted them, uh, so too, you know, Jewish children could imagine the grandparents that they would like to have, even if they're somewhat different than the puppy and Zadie that they personally know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, it's really a fascinating idea. Um, to go back to the, the synagogues, what are some examples of uh, historical synagogues um, that you look at and what are some of the creative ways that people are interacting with them uh, through this um, nostalgic uh, process? Yeah, so I, um, I'll tell you about my my favorite story, um, which um, my favorite story from my research, which takes place at the museum at Eldridge Street, with which we began this conversation. Um, the museum at Eldridge Street is located in a historic synagogue from. Um, 1887, if I have that date right, um, on the Lower East Side in Lower Manhattan. And they um, describe themselves as the first synagogue building built from the ground up by um, Eastern European immigrants. So Eastern European immigrants would would meet um, in, in many different kinds of places, but this was the grand synagogue, the first grand synagogue they built on the Lower East Side when they arrived there. Um, and over the course of the 20th century, it um, in 
the 1970s, 80s. And so it, it fell into disrepair as Jews had left the Lower East Side and, and um, which had once been a thriving immigrant neighborhood, including a Jewish immigrant neighborhood. Um, so by the late 80s, by the 1990s, it, it still had a it still had a congregation, actually. It, it always had a, a congregation that continued to meet there, but they met in the basement and and the grand sanctuary had been shut up for quite some time. The the stand, the beautiful stained glass windows had, had been destroyed. Pigeons were flying in and out and and all the mess that um, that New York City can wreck on a place. <laughs> Um, so, um, in the 1990s and into the early 2000s, um, preservationists, um, worked, worked very hard to restore, um, to renovate the building, restore its former glory and, and thought really carefully about the ways in which it should be restored and, and what should be preserved and, and what should be left. Um, and, and today, or, you know, at, when the pandemic abates um, and you could go again to such buildings, um, tourists can go to visit this synagogue and um, the congregation continues to meet. But during the week, it operates as a museum. That's how they think about that, um, that woman in Dacomo. <laughs> and um, uh, they will sit down, tourists will sit down in the pews and, of the Grand Sanctuary and listen to um, the story of how how the synagogue was shut up and and now it was restored and now it's beautiful and they can look around like that's great they can look around and see how beautiful it is and um, at the end of of this story the docent almost always a woman um, the docent will will lead the tourists out towards the back to continue the tour into other rooms and she stops right at the back of the sanctuary where the museum has has moved away some of the pews. And she'll say, you know, you see how the floorboard is kind of wavy? Step into the indentations in the floorboards. And they will, um, uh, they'll, they'll find themselves lining up in straight lines. And the docent will say, why do you think you've all lined up in straight lines? And um, maybe someone will realize or maybe she'll explain to them that they are standing literally in the footprints of past congregants that they're in lines because um, men, this was an, or an, a gender segregated space, and this was the, the men's space. And um, men standing in front of their pews had rocked back and forth as they prayed in the traditional Jewish fashion, and they'd worn grooves into the soft pine floorboards bo- so that now you, tourists, are able to literally stand in their footprints and i just i love this moment it's so powerful it 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 takes that longing for the past and it makes it it takes all that emotion of being in this place and hearing the story and makes it so immediate and embodied um and and it's it's always like you know i i a lot of this research i looked at in addition to going on many many tours i read a lot of yelp reviews <laughs> of these places and it's it's always mentioned in the yelp reviews as well um and i just think that's such a smart moment of public history that that incorporates the body and emotion and storytelling and the the physical structure of the synagogue in such a smart way wow it really is very powerful when i read that in the book i got chills <laughs> I, I I also uh, totally got sucked into that moment uh, just by reading about it. Um, speaking of embodiment and how that plays a role in this 
these nostalgic uh, or nostalgia practices. Um, you talk about um, uh, uh, um, Jewish culinary nostalgia. What are some examples of Jewish culinary nostalgia, and how does that play out in, in uh, you know people's lives? Yeah, so I was interested not just in um, traditional um, Jewish delis in particular, but in by the early 2000s, uh, we've reached a moment when folks are starting to look around at the nostalgic Jewish stories that have been told and at the ways those have been told in food and started to um, to reevaluate them and started to play with them, um, to get really playful with them. And also to think about how um, delis and other Jewish food institutions didn't necessarily reflect the values that they had as culinary entrepreneurs. Um, so I'm really interested in what sometimes call sometimes called hipster or artisanal delis um, and other types of food businesses that think about um, Jewish Ashkenazi, Eastern European and Central European Jewish food histories and the ways they developed in the United States and and taking those traditions and bringing them into the 21st century with um, with food values such as thinking about local food, thinking about sustainability um, and, and those kind of practices. And the folks I look at do that work with a lot of with a lot of humor as well. Um, so they, they were a lot of fun to study. So, um, I, you know, it was, it was really, it, it was a, it was a really interesting project to study these folks because on the one hand, they're, um, continuing the work that I saw in my other case studies. They're thinking very much about their, their family histories um, I thought about Mile End Deli in New York. I didn't only look at New York places, um, but these are my some of my favorite examples. Um, but Mile End Deli is in um, Brooklyn as well as Manhattan, and the the founder um, there really thought about his own family history, um, his Canadian family history. Mile End, named after the Montreal, um, the Lower East Side of Montreal, I think is is maybe a United States centric way of describing it. Um, but he really thought about his his grandmother's cooking and what it meant to to update his grandmother's cooking and share his family history with others. Um, and so folks are thinking about their own family histories and really, really working through that through food. And at the same time, they're placing themselves again in this broader story of American Jewish food history. And what I'm interested there is the ways that restaurants are are sites of public history or or they can be sites of public history that we don't necessarily think of them in that way but they they tell the the smart ones i think or or the most thoughtful ones tell us a food story um and they might do so through their menus they might do so through the ways they describe themselves um and and that customers can place themselves in that story that that many jewish customers and, and non-Jewish customers, actually, um, walk into a deli and think about all the other times they've had a pastrami sandwich with their family and, and all the times that that makes them think about their family histories. Um, so there, I think there's a lot of narrative work going on there. All right. And I was really um, 
I don't know if tickled is the right word, but I, I, it was very interesting to me to see that there, there was a Kutcher's in Tribeca, obviously um, named after and related to the famous uh, uh, Kutcher's uh, resort in the Catskills, upstate New York. Uh, so there were linkages that were trying to be established. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Kutcher's Tribeca is no longer in existence. Some of the places that I wrote about <laughs> when I did this research um, in the in the 2010s um, are no longer in existence. I, I did see that and I was very <laughs> sad. Actually, I had very big, uh, very um, um, ambitious plans for me, for me and Kutcher's Tribeca. Um, uh, is there a sense of uh, you mentioned that some of the um, establishments closed down. You mentioned that the Gefilteria is still a success and that Y-Sun's Jewish Deli has five locations now. So some of these establishments seem to have thrived and others, um, you know, not so much. Um, do you think it was just based on the kind of the, the individual businesses or their local economy? Or do you think it says something about this aspect of Jewish nostalgia that maybe it's not as sustainable as some other uh, areas that you that you explore. That's a really interesting question. Thank you for that. I um I think some sometimes some restaurants just close, and certainly um, uh, I think um, especially I looked at a number of food trucks um in the Midwest. Those are no longer in existence. Um, I think the the food truck story and maybe Kutcher's Tribeca um, are places where um, restaurateurs tried things out. Um, so I don't know that I, I, I haven't talked to the owners, um, but I don't know that that's always, I don't know that we as um, people analyzing them should necessarily think of them as failures, especially places like food trucks or places where people can try things out at, at kind of a lower risk. Um, and and a certain percentage of restaurants fail, so I don't think that this means that this concept um, isn't is over. Um, and in fact, by by this moment, by the time of the pandemic, I've been really interested to hear from um, deli owners and and folks like the Gefilteria, who who are purveyors of um, artisanal gefilte fish and other um, old world foods, as they say. Um, uh, that that if they made it to the pandemic, actually they're still struggling. It's very very hard to be in the food business in in the pandemic, and I, I don't want to minimize that. But they are actually in one of the food categories that has been doing well in the pandemic because people actually do want comfort food this year, and um, and deli food, Ashkenazi, um, Eastern European, Central European Jewish food. Um, is a comfort food for many people. So I, I hear that from the folks at, at Wise Sons and a couple of other places that um, that their online orders have been doing have been doing quite well. And their their difficulties that they've encountered in the pandemic are the difficulties of of keeping a, a restaurant open in the pandemic. Not that there isn't an audience for it. Yeah. Fascinating. Wow. Um, I'm curious: Is Jewish nostalgia a, a gendered phenomenon? Oh, yes. Love this question. Thank you. Um, so first of all, no, not necessarily. I think that the the folks I'm looking at really ended up like naturally being um, 
men and women, people of all genders and kind of an, an even um, gender spread. Um, sometimes <laughs> sometimes folks think assume that I'm looking primarily at men or looking primarily at women. And it was it was really pretty even um, when I went back and and started by the by the end of working on this book, I was giving a lot of presentations about it already. And um, I found a difference in the ways that people thought about my work, actually. Um, and when I presented my work at a Jewish genealogical society um, here where I am in San Francisco, um, m- the men in the group tended to push back. They did not necessarily love hearing that their work was emotional. They didn't. They didn't disagree with my research, but they didn't love the way I was describing their work as emotional um, or as religious. Um, but the women in the group tended to say, "You're naming something that that we hadn't quite been able to articulate." So there's that difference. Um, in the food industry, I think there's a gender. I think there are gender dynamics at play in each of the case studies that I look at. In in the museum world, there tends to be gender differences at different levels. In in the restaurant world, um, it's very hard to to run a restaurant and, and be in the restaurant business as a, as a woman. And and there's plenty of work out there um, describing that. The women in the restaurant chapter. Um, in my restaurant chapter, tend to be running businesses with men. And I, I think that's a reflection just of, of how, the re- how difficult the restaurant um, business is for women in general. So I would say, yeah, so, so there's definitely gender dynamics going on in every way, but because we live in a world with gender differences, not because nostalgia itself um, is particularly gendered. Great, great answer. <laughs> um, all right. Well, last question. Uh, looking forward, uh, speaking sort of the opposite of nostalgia, uh, could you tell us about a, uh, any new project that you're working on now? Yeah. So I have grand plans someday. I think in the future, I'd like to continue this work and think about do-it-yourself Judaism and the institutions um, like PJ Library, as well as a couple of other institutions that I think encourage American Jews um, who are their constituents to think about how they're doing Judaism on their own, but are really giving them the tools and, and directing them, directing their Jewish lives in particular ways, in the ways that Jew- PHA Library is handing um, Jewish families books. Um, I'm not emotionally ready to take on that project <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, and um as as a religious studies scholar, I, I need to take a, a brief break from living Jews, uh, which as a sociologist, perhaps you understand. I, I need to study some some Jews in the past in in the in the meantime. And I'm I'm just at the beginning of a project in which I want to think about the immigration story that that I've looked at in this um, in this book and think about where did it come from? So I want to look at, I want to write a religious biography of the immigration writer, Mary Anton, who was a really popular immigration writer in 
the 1910s. Had a, she had a brief moment of fame, and um, and she's still remembered and beloved by like people who teach literature classes on immigration <laughs> memoirs and very few other people. But she actually had a really interesting and complicated religious life um, that complicates. Um, has a, she had a complicated relationship to being a Jew and explored a lot of other religions. So I, I want to um, think about that, that immigration narrative in, in the life of this one particular woman. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Well, uh, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for these questions. Uh, well, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.